When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The NFL Draft is just a couple days away on Thursday. The Bucks have plenty of wants, not many needs with 22 starters returning. They also may not make a pick until like Friday morning because they pick 32nd last in the first round, which is where you want to be as a Super Bowl champion. It's got us to thinking, who's the greatest Bucks draft pick ever? We're talking Bucks and draft with Tom Jones, my former radio partner, longtime columnist of the Tampa Bay Times, now with the Pointer Institute on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times, along with producer Steve Versnick. Good to have you in, Tommy. It's draft week, man. It is draft week, Rick, and I'm glad you're having me in this week because I saw something the other day. So I was watching, in case anybody didn't know, I'm from Pittsburgh. Uh, mm-hmm. And so I occasionally will watch a sports show in Pittsburgh on Sunday nights. It's called, and I, I think it's called The Final Word. And they have, you know, it's like a host, like the, the local TV and NBC affiliate. And it's the, you know, the sports anchor. And he hosts, they have three, three local people on, like sports writers or radio guys, that sort of thing. Really? Like that's old school. Like that's, that's old. That's, yeah, no, it's That's great. like Ted Webb days. You <laughs> know right. what I mean? The like old the old sports, sports huddle. Sports, sports rap. rap. That's yeah. right. Sports rap. Yeah. Sports. There was a sports huddle too. I think. I think you're right about that. I think there is. Yeah. Um. So yeah. So so it it was, and I used to host a show, the press box. That the was press box, which the you old, never had me on, by the way. I. You know what? And I thought about that. I should have had it on you all the time because I always thought I was. It was taped like at ten thirty in the morning. I thought I don't want to bug you. You were. You seemed busy back then. You're you- like my mom. My mom doesn't call me very much. God bless her, you know, and I should call her every day, and I don't, and I should. And she's going to be 94 years old. She's always like, well, you're, you're too busy. I don't want to call you. You're too busy. It's like, I'm never too busy for it. Who am I? Here's the thing. When you live, and you know this as a reporter, we live with a phone attached to our hip. That is okay? true. And now I have one of these great Apple Watches. Have you bought one of these things? I have not. Tom. The, well, see, I can, that, that, that's that's too much for me. It's no, no, it's Dick Tracy ish, right? Like going way back in the day, the old car where you had the radio and the whole phone on your watch. You talk into your watch. It's good. Is, don't you feel like you're always working though at that point? Well, you. Well, are I am anyway. Work. Yeah. Right. See, this is the thing. I've given in. I've completely given in. The phone can never be turned off. I can never be turned off. They just they just take the batteries out of me at night. But basically, um, so so with the Apple Watch. You don't even have to have the phone. You got satellite on your wrist. It's crazy. You you can talk. The kids the kids all love this. So I have this thing now, and so I'm I'm on twenty four seven is what it amounts to. So I don't know how we got on this topic, but I I can't turn it off. So I'm always checking checking things. And you well, know, that's, it, it goes back to I didn't want to bug you because you, you could, seem so well, but busy. You, but now I'm yeah. bugged. I'm busy, but I'm bugged all the time. Like if you can't reach me, then I'm dead. Okay, like I'm either dead or I'm on the phone. 
Right. And if I'm on the phone, you'll know that I'm not dead because you're see now. So if I send you a text or an email in the future and you and you ignore me, you can't give the the old excuse because now it's on your wrist. You can't give it's, me the excuse. Oh, I left my my well, phone was in, in the car. There's a caveat. Went, you you could forget to charge the said wrist, wristwatch, which right. which sometimes you know that happens. But yeah. okay, so well, the, yeah, there's that. So you're watching the old sports. So I'm watching the old sports wrap, the old final word or whatever. And they had, they had a great question on there. Um, they asked that with the draft coming up, they asked who was the greatest draft pick in Pittsburgh Steelers history, and that oh was the gosh. extent of the question. That was the whole extent you could you could take it any way you want. You could take it in terms of who was the most impactful player or who was the best value for the spot they were taken. Uh, was it like a third round pick who turned into a franchise type player? So with the Steelers, obviously the Steelers have more of a history. I was going to say, but that's the Bucks a, do. That's tough, man. You it got is. all those Super Bowls. I mean, I mean, so from yeah, different I mean, eras, even right? I mean, different yeah. eras. They so they yeah. they've been to, to what eight Super Bowls? They've won six of them. Yeah. Some in the seventies, some in the uh, in the two thousands, and and so the answers were really all over the board. I think some of the names that were thrown on there as possibilities were Mean Joe Green, who mm-hmm. sort of uh, was was the they built a steel curtain defense around him. It was the start of the dynasty in Pittsburgh when they drafted him. Terry Bradshaw was the quarterback through all those years. He was the first overall pick. Um, and then somebody mentioned Ben Roethlisberger, who was part of the yeah, second sort bad. of the second era of great Steeler teams. Yeah, uh, he was drafted eleven. What a what a pick for the eleventh overall to get a franchise quarterback out of Miami of Ohio with the eleventh pick. So that was, and there were others. Somebody mentioned like T.J. Watt. Even I, I disagreed with that pick, but somebody thought, what about T.J. Watt? He's picked thirty second overall, and he's turned into a lot a, of production. Sort of, Defensive yeah. player of the year. So it got me thinking. Now, the Bucks obviously don't have that history as the Steelers, but oh, they have really? some. I haven't noticed. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, let's, let's let them revel in their, in their current Super Bowl right. victory. Because there's only, I think, nine or so teams that have more than one Super Bowl. There you so go. the Bucks are in that elite league right now. So let's give them that. Exactly. And so when you look back at the history of the Bucks, which is coming up on, what, 50 years pretty soon here. Yeah. Um, a lot of draft picks, some some real swings and misses, which I'm sure we'll get into at some point. A lot of number one overall draft picks. Exactly. So, uh, so if I were to ask you, and again, you could you could put any sort of uh, quantifiers on it that you want, but if I were to ask you, greatest pick in Tampa Bay Bucks history, greatest draft pick in Bucks history, who would yep. you say? Wow. Um... There, there's a lot of ways you could go because I, I like the value question of that. You know what I'm saying? Right, like where right. you got him and what he became. If you were going to go, if you were going to go value, okay, um, and and he had the worst rookie season maybe of any player I've seen. I mean, I'm not exaggerating here, and he'll tell you this. But there was a third round pick out of Virginia named Rondé Barber. Mm-hmm. That didn't play much as a rookie till like the postseason, and it was weird because they just threw him in there against Green Bay. Um, played a little while, played a long time. Yeah, Hall of Fame final or you know a finalist this potentially year, potentially a Hall of Famer. Yeah, may make the Hall of Fame. I think there's a, a actually a very good chance that he does. Um, and from those teams that won the Super Bowl in 2002, so from a value standpoint, I think he played the most games in Tampa Bay history. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't miss many starts, if any. 
I think Ronnie Barber is way up on the list now, and he has he has the signature play of the franchise, in my opinion. He had, yeah, me you know, too. The, we talked about that last week. Yeah, yeah. the Philadelphia interception and, and running it back 92 yards in the championship game, which led to the Super Bowl. However, however, um, you know, and another way that I've always thought about it this way, I've always said, you know, it's possible, just possible, that the Bucks' first ever pick ever in the franchise history may have been their best. Think about that. How many franchises start and and sort of hit their peak with the first player they select, which was Leroy Selman, right? Their first Super Bowl player, um, or, or Hall of Fame player. I'm sorry, he didn't reach the Super Bowl. Hall of Fame player. You know, just just a dominant guy. Um, didn't play a long time. You know, he ended up with a back injury. Um, but was so dominant in his era at a time when, you know, guys weren't massive and, and he played, he was double teamed a lot and, and just had a huge impact. Of course, we all remember, you know, coming in in 76 and then losing 26 in a row and the things he endured. I've always thought Leroy Selman might have been their best pick. However, <laughs> I'm leading up to the buildup. Yeah. I think you, I think you have to look at the 2002 team. Okay, mm-hmm. and and say who were the stars of that team? There's no question in my mind that Mr. Buck. If you're just gonna say who is Mr. Buck of this franchise, it's Derek Brooks. Derek Brooks is your, is the best linebacker. He was the captain. He was sort of the uh, the calm, the guy in the huddle that talked. Um, defensive player of the year, the year they won the Super Bowl. I think he had five touchdowns, um, which was or, you know four, and then the one in the Super Bowl unprecedented right the year that he had and longevity I mean he made 11 Pro Bowls I mean it's hard to match the resume that Derek Brooks has and for that reason I think most people most people and I'm not going to argue against it most people would say it's Derek Brooks however final answer uh, oh see that's my watch it it thinks that I'm talking to it wasn't that cool final answer Watch. Hold on. Let me let me make sure it's not. <laughs> Final answer is going to be for me, Warren Sapp. Now, I say Warren Sapp for a couple of reasons. One, he was supposed to be the first overall pick in the draft. And if you remember when he came out, there were draft day rumors about drug use, and he did fail, um, I think, a, 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 a marijuana. It sounds ridiculous now. A marijuana test at the Combine. Um, may have had one at Miami, but there was rumors, and they were unsubstantiated and turned out to be false as, as, as they could be, that maybe he had done cocaine. You know, Chris Mortensen's doing these reports, and he's falling, right? There's no way. He was supposed to be number one overall. The Bucks actually traded out of their spot, I think, at seven and went to 11. Minnesota had a chance at him, didn't take him. And they get him, uh, talk about value, they get the best player really in the draft that year but he comes in and he's playing for Sam Weich and Floyd Peters, I think, was the defensive coordinator. Um, Santana Dotson actually started the first eight games. Warren was not really playing much or playing on pass rushdowns and things like that. It wasn't until Tony Dungy got here that he took off. But the three technique in that defense worked so closely um, with everybody behind them, including Derek Brooks, and they played off each other so well, both in on the field and off the field, because Sapp was – you know, bombastic and loud and said whatever, everything that that Brooks wanted to say but couldn't. Um, so they were really the perfect complement to each other. 
I just think that it starts up front in football. As and, and I'm not. This is believe me, and he'll probably give me a call. I am not sliding Derek Brooks. He is still Mr. Buck in my mind, uh, and and many many people would say he's the greatest Buck of all time. But from a draft pick standpoint. Because of where they got him. I mean, they got Derek Brooks. Look, they moved back in the first round. I mean, here's a guy that could have easily made it to the second. So credit the Bucks for doing that, too. Because when you're talking about how a first battle Hall of Famer late in the first round like that, it doesn't happen. But I think where they got him, what he became, what he meant to that defense, also a defense player, I'm going to say it's Warren Sapp. So this is an opinion question. So there are no right or wrong answers. But I'm going to tell you, Rick, there is a right answer. And you got it right. It's Warren Sapp. Warren Sapp is the greatest draft pick in Tampa Bay Bucks history. Now, for, why, though? Why for everything remember? that you just mentioned, and because I look at it the same way, too, is that it starts up front. I don't know that in this – well, I'm, I'm not going to go as far as to say that they would have won without Derek Brooks. But if you're telling me which one was more valuable – even though I would argue, yeah, like you just did a minute ago, Derek Brooks is Mr. Buck, the greatest Buccaneers player in history. And, and as you mentioned, get him number 28 overall. But I do believe it does start in the middle. And it does start – he did things that allowed them to run that entire defense the way they ran it. That's true. And that, and that defense won them that Super Bowl. No doubt. And not, not only won the, that game, but also won – you know, got him to the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's clear. And for all the reasons you mentioned, Leroy Selman should be on that list. Um, How about Derek my Rondé Barber pick? Rondé Barber pick is a really good From pick. From a value standpoint. Um, you know, there were other guys that were picked uh, not in the first round who were very valuable uh, to this franchise. You know, Mike Allstott was not a first-round pick. Um you know, yeah, in fact, they were, they were not even targeting Mike Allstott. Their guy got taken before that, and they ended up with Mike. Right. Mike was not was not really a guy that they were after, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, think about that. I mean, a, another guy that you could you could dub Mister, probably the most popular player, arguably, in Tampa Bay history. And you look at some of the, even the recent players, you know, like guys like Donovan Smith who wasn't a first round. How pick about a Ellie, Mike Evans, Ellie Marpet? I think Mike about, Evans will go, someday. Rick will go down in the top five Buccaneer players of all time if he's not already there. Totally agree. Totally agree. But when, when, when you're talking about a guy, a guy that I don't believe they win a Super Bowl without this player, I think it's Warren Sapp. I think he's the greatest draft pick. And I'm not even a big Sapp guy, as you know. Like, I don't like the way he, he carried himself sometimes in terms of how he treated people, uh, how he treats the media sometimes. But his just the impact that he had on the field, I I think he's the best. I think he's the best draft pick. And quite frankly, the best Buccaneers player ever. Most talented. I, I think there was a time there, Rick, you can make a pretty good argument he's the best defensive player in football, like for a good while there, you know? Oh, well, he was. I mean, he actually was the defensive player of the year. And as and, was Brooks, as you mentioned. And as was Brooks, but but he dominated. Here's the thing. Three techniques and defensive tackles in general weren't known as pass rushers, right? For the longest time, they were just space eaters. You know, they were the guys – and that's a lot of the job, right? The job is not a stats-driven position, right? Vita Vea right now might be one of the best interior defensive linemen in football. When he played against Green Bay, it made the total difference in the Bucks' defense, right? And yet he didn't record a single stat that day. Did not have a tackle, did not have a sack, might have had a quarterback pressure. But what he did was, was push the pocket into Aaron Rodgers' lap to where Rodgers had to get outside, where there were one-on-ones against Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul, and he created so many opportunities. Those guys combined for five sacks 
principally because Vita Vea was playing on passing downs. So, you know, it's the old adage, if you watch the ball, you miss the game. So understand that that in, on a, at a position where, especially in, in the early 2000s, the, the three technique, you know, obviously John Randall sort of, sort of started it right in Minnesota with, with, uh, you know, becoming a defensive player of the year with the sacks and all that stuff. Sap followed it up though. But when you have 16 and I think 16 and a half sacks from the three technique, from the defensive line position, when you're, you're being double teamed, most of the plays you're responsible for the run, you, you stop the run on the way to the passer and you're that productive. It's unbelievable, right? We've seen Aaron Donald, you know, in a, in a different era, um, you know, have over 20 sacks, and, and he's the probably the best in the game. I got news for you. Aaron, Aaron Donald does not play the run, not the way Sapp did. Um, he He's strictly, to my my liking, just a pass rusher. And when I say just, he's a tremendous player, but he's not Warren Sapp, in my, in my opinion. But, yeah, Sapp was – and also, you know, for all the bombast, I mean, you know, Sapp brought an attitude to that football team that – a toughness, you know, that was undeniable. And as great as as great as Brooks is, and he and like I said, you, it's hard to separate the two. What's funny? I was talking to Derek Brooks today, as a matter of fact, as we're doing this podcast, because of the uh, tragic passing of Geno Hayes at age thirty three, died mm. of liver disease. Just a horrible story. And and Geno Hayes was a guy that idolized Derek Brooks, and for good reason. He he went to Florida State. He wore number ten in honor of Derek Brooks. Played the same position. Then when Brooks gets cut in two, after the 2008 season, um, Geno Hayes is a sixth-round draft pick, had been on the team all of, I think, one year, and Geno Hayes steps into his idol's position, right, at weak side linebacker and plays it for four years or three or four years, then goes to Chicago, then then ends up um, his career in Jacksonville, and he wears 55 in honor of Derek Brooks. Um, so, so those guys were separated, you know, I mean, it, it just shows you the greatness of Derek, but I, I just think that SAP, um, you know, they played off each other so well. And Brooks, he told me, he told me when I was talking to him, uh, the other day that, you know, similar to with Gino Hayes, he went to the Bucks and he talked to them about Gino and Gino was a sixth round pick. And he said, trust me, I know the guy, I know, all of, I know he'll fit in. He'll do a good job. Um, I'll help mentor him, all that stuff. He kind of knew Sap the same way. I mean, they were going to draft Derek Brooks, and they had lots of meetings with him before the draft. And Sap and Brooks came out in the same draft in '95, I believe. But Brooks sold the Bucks on Sap because there was like, there was a lot of question marks about him. And he said, "Look, I played in All Star games with this guy. By the way, Sap was a tight end, right? When he went to Miami, if you can believe that. But Brooks and them have known each other since high school All Star games. He goes, "I'm telling you." You know, you, you know, forget about what you hear. This guy's tremendous. He loves football. He's, you know, all this stuff. And and I think in large part because of what Brooks said and others, um, the Bucks were willing to take that chance. Weren't willing to take it at seven, but moved down, I think, uh, to 12 if memory serves and got yeah, him that's right, right in there. Yeah, so it's. Uh, I think you're right, Tom. I, I And, again, Derek's listening. Nothing against Derek Brooks. No, I look at it, and now that I'm more I think about it, I don't I don't think they win a Super Bowl without Brooks either. No like, way. I, Absolutely. With his, impossible. And his leadership, it's not just what he did on the field. He had a, he brought a leadership that Sap, quite frankly, didn't bring. Uh, he was the glue. Yeah. Right. Brooks was the glue to that to that entire and now some people will tell you, and Brooks has said this to me, he thinks that John Lynch was the guy Well, that's that, the other guy that we we didn't mention because I mean, 
There's yeah. th- there's they they drafted four Hall of Famers as of now. Four Hall of Famers and three We've mentioned, on one defense. Right. We mentioned three. We mentioned Sap Brooks and, and Leroy Salmon. Fourth one is John Lynch, who by the way was the 82nd pick overall, third rounder. How so about that? You, you draft the guy in the third round, so we should at least mention him as well. Uh, for so as far as value goes. That's pretty he, good value. He's right Third there with pick. Ronda. Yeah, and the sure. thing about the thing about Lynch just for a minute is that this was a guy that came to Stanford as a quarterback, right? He was a quarterback coming to Stanford, and he goes there, and uh, he doesn't play much, if at all, but he was also a baseball player. And so he's, he's having success in two sports. Um, he's about to quit football to play baseball full-time when Bill Walsh arrives. From the 49ers, right? He quit the 49ers, sat out, I think, a year, did some broadcasting, goes to Stanford. And he's coaching Stanford. And Walsh tells him, tells Lynch, I think you could make it uh, to the NFL as a safety. And about that time, you know, Ronnie Lott's coming around Stanford. And, 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 and you know, Walsh is telling him how, you know, he could be a Ronnie Lott type of player. And, you know what, Lynch bought in. But even then, you know, like you said, he lasted into the third round, and it was Weich's, It was uh, Walsh's recommendation to Sam Weich, who had been with Walsh in San Francisco as a quarterback's coach, that convinced him to take John Lynch. And in the beginning, it was not a good start because Lynch was not playing. And to the point where he was the first player ever drafted by the then Miami Marlins, Literally the first player. They didn't have any minor leagues, anything. Before they be- started the major league season in 98, they began um, – actually, I think they began before 98, uh, if I'm not mistaken. They were the first team in Florida. But they drafted John Lynch as the first player ever drafted by the Marlins as a pitcher. But before um, you know, Lynch went and played baseball, thankfully he continued to, you know, to play safety, and the Bucks drafted him, and he did not play right away. He was – down on the depth chart and was thinking about going and playing baseball again. And then Tony Dungy arrived. And when Dungy arrived, eventually he got in the starting lineup again with Brooks, with Sapp. Um, and that became, you know, the spine of that defense. Um, and, and you're right. When you talk about draft picks for value, him, Ronnie Barber, I mean, those are really good value picks. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, um, We've got our we got our we're in agreement then I guess uh, with respect to to Warren Sapp who, mm-hmm. pro, who who and by the way Warren Sapp will tell you it's not Warren Sapp I've had this conversation with him he'll tell he'll tell you the greatest buck is Derek Brooks and he has no problem well I mean I almost I almost think there's a difference and I know we're we're really splitting hairs here there's a difference between greatest buck yeah. and best draft pick or right. sort sure. of how we sort of categorize it I right. And and I, I almost would say, and I know it doesn't make any sense where you could say where maybe John guy, Lynch was the greatest draft pick, but Derek mm-hmm. Brooks is still the greatest buck. Yeah, I yeah. don't know. I I think if you were going to pick a face, maybe of a franchise, if you're going to say what's the face of the Buccaneers, I think it's Derek Brooks. I could be wrong. I mean, Warren no, Sapp's right. face was no, pretty I recognizable, right. but I think, I think you're right. I think for everything he represented for a franchise and a community. And he's still doing it today. Well, you mentioned the community too, and, and how, how how involved. You know, Leroy Salmon was a big part of that originally yeah. too. You know, with oh, um, yeah. the restaurant, obviously. And USF. We have, got USF, USF football started. Right. We have a big, obviously, a big <laughs> uh, expressway. Expressway named that after I me. donate to con- liberally every day. <laughs> That's right. I think I paid for that expressway by now. I by know. Way. 
And then, but but Brooks, yeah, Brooks now is yeah, he's obviously very active in the community and working with Jeff Finnick and doing everything that he's he's done. Um, you know, working in education, working with kids. So uh, certainly, a, a, that also I think carries weight when you talk about face of the franchise type stuff. I had a question um, that somebody asked me. I think it was for one of the TV show I do on Spectrum Sports Three Hundred and Sixty. Face off. Make sure you check it out on Tuesday nights, especially. Um, it was something about Jason Lights, and maybe it wasn't on that question. Maybe that wasn't a TV question. But regardless, Jason Lights' greatest draft pick. Jason Lights' greatest draft pick. Now he came in in what, with two, Lovey. With so that would have been two thousand fourteen. Fourteen. That sound right? Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. I so his best. Draft pick since two thousand. Well, I mean, I mean, you built the whole damn team when you think about it, right? Right. I mean, and I and I think I think right now when you, when you talk about best players drafted, I think you would you would go. There are three number one picks that I think would be on that list. Devin okay. White being right. the most yep. recent one. Yep. Vita Vea before that, mm-hmm. um, and then and now you obviously you drafted Jameis and some other people as well. What about Tristan Wirfs? Tristan Wirfs, yeah, no, Tristan Wirfs well on his way to being mm-hmm. looks like a pretty good player. I, he's also gotten, you know, he's drafted some guys after the first round. We mentioned yeah, Donovan Carlton Smith, Davis, and Sean Murphy, Bunning. Yeah, yeah, Chris Godwin was a third round pick. That's so, a great one, yeah. Uh, but I, I don't think there's any question in my mind. Mike Evans is his is his best draft pick. I, the, he's the best player that he's drafted, and look, there wasn't at number seven. I mean, when they picked Mike Evans that year, mm-hmm. um, there was. It, we weren't a hundred percent sure what they were going to do with the seventh pick. There were some other guys that he could have taken there, even a wide receiver. Oh, Odell Beckham Jr. was available in that draft. Well, if you remember, the first receiver taken was Sammy Watkins, right at number right. four overall. But that yeah. yeah, that was the year that Clowney went first. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, after Evan, I mean, some of the guys that were available. Um, well, I'll give you one. I'll just tell the story. I've told it before, and I, I don't think Jason gets mad at me, although we laugh about it now. It wasn't funny at the time. So, so <laughs> Lovey is in charge. I mean, for for all intents and purposes, Lovey Smith kind of had control, right? I mean, he was named the head coach before they hired a GM, and Lovey was in on the GM process, right? In other words, if you were going to be GM, you had to interview with Lovey. So, right, um, that's sort of how it went back there. It's kind of strong, Mary, weak, weak council, weak count, strong council, weak mayor, right? Well, this was a very strong head coach. So, Lovey comes in, they line up some interviews. They decide on Jason Light. Okay, but Lovey, now Tom, don't go leading the charge. All that, right? Right. Discouraged, I go back to disappointed. So Lovey decides in his infinite wisdom um, that he wants to play a little rope-a-dope for the draft. And this is the game as old as time, right? How much smoke can we send up? One of the greatest, the greatest rope-a-dopes ever actually happened during Sap's draft year. And if you remember, everybody bit hard on it. That was when, you know, the draft Knicks were in full force, like Kuyper, Joel Bushbaum, all these guys, right? And the Bucks sold, uh, what was the guy's name? From He ended up going to Philly before Sap. Was it Mamola? Was that his name? Mamula. Mamula. Right. Uh, defensive, a defensive end who didn't amount to, you know, anything. Um, he was a workout freak. He was one of these combine guys, right? Um, but, and so the Bucks, the Bucks, and every other team puts out a lot of false stuff in the first draft that Jason Light had, 
Lovey decides we're gonna we're gonna try to divert everyone's eyes away from Mike Evans, right? They knew who they wanted, and most teams kind of do the whole you know mock draft thing, and they yeah, they yeah, can yeah. within reason they can figure out who's going to be there. Um, but Mike Evans was their guy. But who did they sell me and everyone else on? How about I remember Johnny Football? Yeah, and I bit so hard on that. Like I was like, really? Oh, really? And it was like, oh, but you know, Bill O'Brien, my good friend Bill O'Brien, he thinks the world of Johnny Menzel and everybody. Oh, Johnny's he's got I like the guy. I like the guy a lot. He's got some really flash, got some, you know, just has some moxie to him. Then you go back and you you replay all that, right? And you go, wait a minute now. Johnny Manziel had like two fantastic seasons, right? But what I remember about those years was him running around and then at the last minute just chucking the ball as far as he could and watching Mike Evans go up and get it. You know, Mike Evans was the guy on the other end of all those passes. That's right. And so when you watch film of Johnny Manziel, what you saw was Mike Evans making play after play after play after play. So Mike Evans was their guy. I remember writing the story about how they don't be surprised if they go quarterback and it's Manziel. You remember uh, the the word is that I really believe that that Johnny Manziel. The word is Jerry Jones really wanted the guy. Yeah. You know, of course he went much later, and we know to Cleveland, and we know the rest of the story. But yeah, Mike Evans. I you know think, you know I what's totally funny. Agree with you. You know what's funny is about that draft. Looking back at it now, is that. There were only four quarterbacks taken in the first 50 picks of that draft. Is that right? Four? Yeah, so looking at it back now, yeah. So the number three overall pick that year was Blake Bortles. Okay. Johnny Manziel went number 22. The last pick of the first round at number 32 going to Minnesota was Teddy Bridgewater. Mm -hmm. And then Derek Carr went in the second round, 36 overall um, to To, Oakland. To the Raiders, yeah. And then some of the other quarterbacks taken after that, uh, Jimmy Garoppolo went 62nd overall. Yeah, um, guy named Logan Thomas went to Arizona at one twenty. Logan, Logan Thomas now a tight end for the for the Washington football team. There you he go. Tom Savage went to Houston at number one thirty five. Aaron Tom Murray Savage. got drafted that year. AJ Can- McCarron, Kansas City, yeah. McCarron Zach, Met- from Alabama. Zach Mettenberger. So, um, so a lot they, of good you know, broadcasters in that, in that group. <laughs> exactly. But, um, but yeah. So I mean, Mike Evans and, and like I said, it wasn't as if. Um, it wasn't if there weren't there weren't some other good players out there to take at with oh, that, no with that pick like I said uh, Odell Beckham Jr went after Mike Evans um in that draft uh who's had a better career It's a tough question but I mean obviously o- Odell Beckham got hurt last year and didn't play but who who's yeah, had I mean, a I think Odell career? Beckham Jr is Evans a fabulous talent but I just I don't yeah. think that's a I think Mike Evans. I mean, he, how many years is he? Get? He's going to have a thousand years every year. Thousand yards every year. Thousand yards. Career, it looks like. Seven in a row. And 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 here's the thing that you would never get. You talk about a diva. You know, the the receiver position is a diva position, right? I mean, just it, it just is, right? Because you're dependent on hey, I'm open, right? Like the oldest time you go right. out, you play the Turkey Bowl. Me and you used to play the Turkey Bowl, right? Sure. And we'd go out there, and like my friend Bill Bond would be winging it, you know, the old southpaw. Man, he can and throw it hard. He did. But well, we, well, you caught a lot of balls, and so did I. And, and but it was always they like you stuck come back. to me. They they like caved my chest in. I, <laughs> right. I had no choice but get the little cross catch. on the chest from the point of the ball. But but you go out there, and you come back, you go, hey man, I'm open. <laughs> like it didn't matter what level you're playing, right? If you're a receiver, 
you believe on every play the ball should come your way. And if it doesn't, it just means that you're pulling a hamstring because you're busting it for no reason, right? So so oldest time, you know, like it's a diva position. And I'm not saying that Mike Evans doesn't want to see the football because one year I think Jameis Winston targeted him 1,016 times. And I don't even know that I'm off that by by more than a couple hundred. Like <laughs> he – he really like he I he may he led the NFL in in targets and I think maybe half of those balls were actually caught mostly because the other ones weren't catchable, but um, so Mike got his share right he at, at the time that he was drafted and Jameis came in the next year Mike was what they had and everything ran through Mike but think about a guy that comes into the league didn't play a lot of college football I mean frankly he didn't play a lot of high school football he was a basketball player that right. was his whole deal and he goes to A and M and for two years he just you know morphs into this, you know, um, Randy Mossing type machine who was his favorite player uh, and his idol. And and then, you know, you go in the NFL and you put up seven consecutive 1,000-yard seasons. But this past year, talk about a guy who's unselfish at a very selfish position. So all of a sudden we got Chris Godwin emerging that had led the team uh, in 2019 with – you know, thirteen hundred and thirty-three yards and 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 nine touchdowns. Mike did not lead the team. He had a thousand yards, but but Chris actually had the most catches because when Bruce Arians came in with the offense, the slot receiver gets all the balls. I mean, that's why Larry Fitzgerald was targeted so much in Arizona. It's it's an offense that runs through the slot receiver, not the outside guy. So Mike got his, but Godwin got more. Now you go into Tom Brady land where he shows up, and it's like we got Gronk who's going to take away some balls. We've got Godwin, obviously, who's established now as our, you know, the most targets uh, from from a year ago. Oh, hey, here's Antonio Brown halfway through the season, right? So all these guys are just taking touches and, and attempts away from you. And we know that Jameis Winston, no matter what happened, Jameis Winston was going to find Mike Evans and heave that ball. He was just going to chuck it down the field and hope that Mike can make a play. But that's no longer the deal. And the guy was unselfish enough to give up all of that for a chance to win. And I, I think that is so rare in this game today at that position. Well, and I, I, I'm a fan of Odell Beckham Jr., but let's face it, there's been some drama in his career, throughout oh, his career, in sure. both, both in New York and in Cleveland. There, As far as I know, there may be things happening behind the scenes I don't know. No drama with Mike Evans. Nothing. Not in no. terms of being a diva, in terms of complaining about not getting a football. The only time he got in trouble was when he took a knee, Tom. Right, and and when you say got in trouble with some aspect, you, I know you're not saying that, but with some aspects of the of the fan base, right? But, he took he took heat for it, yeah. Which I yeah, which I we both totally supported. I believe. I mean, I know I did for you know. Yeah, his, I had no right problem there. with it. I think it's been proven to be the right stance. But that's but it's me. yeah. I mean, so and and also look at his numbers too. I mean, eighty two hundred career yards uh, compared to Odell Beckham. I'm looking it up here. Sixty eight hundred. You know, almost sixty nine hundred. Mm-hmm. Brandon Cooks was in that in that draft. Good player, uh, yeah. And, but been um, with a what, like three, four teams by now. Yeah, Devonte Adams was in that draft. Um, solid. Jarvis solid, Landry. Yeah. Jarvis Landry was in that. That's draft. a hell of a receiver draft, really. Yeah, I mean, they were talking wow. about guys taken later on, second, third rounds. They're all still uh, productive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, John Brown, uh, not mm-hmm. quite as productive, but um, Cardinals though did some yeah, things. Did some. Yeah. Did a couple of things. So um, now, okay, let's let. Can we go the opposite way? I'm sure people sure. are wondering. Uh, sure. Worst. Worst pick of the Jason Light era, and then let's, let's also do worst pick ever for the for the Bucks. Ooh, um, 
Jason is, I mean, what's going to be on his tombstone uh, uh, right after <laughs> Super Bowl champion, thank God he, he has changed the first line of the Wikipedia page because until this year, you know, he, he's now known as the GM that convinced Tom Brady to leave New England and won a Super Bowl. That's, that's all you got to know about Jason Light. Right. Um, and every GM, look, it's the draft. Every GM's going to swing and miss. Oh, this yeah. was a big swing, though, Rick. He went up swinging for the fences on, on the guy that I think you're going to mention. Yeah, he did. But, but the thing is, is that, you know, um, like you said, that in, in the first round, I think, you know, really it's a 50% bust rate no matter where you pick a player. And, and you know, I mean, you can look at Jason and you could say, hey, Jameis Winston, five years, didn't work out. That – that wasn't a good pick, um, but I think a lot of people might have taken Jameis at number one overall, especially where they were. Um, and there, there's been lots of other players, but the one that the one that he's going to wear, uh, and he does with some humor now, is Roberto Aguayo, and not so much. See, I still maintain, and and I know a little bit about this, but I still maintain a couple of things. One. Um, I think the Glazers put their hand on the scale. Now, when I say that, I'm not saying they say, you must take him and you must take him with this pick. I don't know that they went there. But if you look at the Bucks' kicking history, even at that point, and it got worse afterwards as well, he just added to the poor legacy, uh, the curse of Matt Bryant. Um, they were tired of not having a kicker that was any good. And, and having drafted Jameis, the guy who played with Jameis was statistically – the most accurate kicker in college football history. What we didn't know was a couple of things. One, he almost rarely or never attempted a 50-yard field goal. In other words, he, he while he could kick it that far, there was no track record that he was going to be very good beyond 45 yards. Number two is, we know this about kicking. It's the, it's it, You get the yips. It's like golf, right? It's, it's the most – it's not a physical thing. It's a mental thing, right? So, you know, you're out there by yourself and all of that. I really think that by overdrafting Roberto Aguayo, by putting so much attention on the fact that, oh, my gosh, the Bucks used a second-round pick on a kicker, I think that that completely screwed up Aguayo's mind to the point where he didn't know which leg to swing. I mean – and and it was it was so obvious almost from the start of training camp. I mean, he was he I believe he was unopposed. I don't even know that they had another kicker in camp. And you know when they would line up and practice all that stuff, all of a sudden he can't split the uprights. And you know he ended up I think seventy seven percent as a rookie. Came back the next year, had to compete for his job, and got cut. And and so for that kind of capital to use a second round pick on a kicker. They did it again a couple of years later with a fifth rounder in Matt Gay. Um, I think that has to be Jason Light's worst pick. It, yeah, and and you just mentioned it a moment ago, Rick, in that it was the second round part. That's what the, did you need to take him in the second round? I had no problem with addressing kicker, and I no, kinda, they needed to, right? And he was there. He was a second round pick. He was actually their third overall pick. They had you know they had two picks in the second round that year. Um, but I agree with you, Rick. I think if, you know, it's almost like I look back at you talk about Roberto Aguayo almost getting into his head. I remember I covered a guy named Chris Gratton played for the Tampa Bay Yeah, Lightning. yeah. Now, if I told you before, the Lightning are going to draft a guy, he's going to play what you end up playing with, I don't know, he played with a half dozen teams, played 15 years in the NHL, played over 1,000 games. Not a lot of guys, you know, they give you a, a silver stick 
if you play a thousand games in the NHL. But when you look back at Chris Gratton's career, it's sort of a mixed bag. A lot of people, eh, third overall pick. Well, if he'd have been picked in the fifth round, you would have said, what a career. For what a steal, guy. yeah. Yeah, but the fact that you picked him third overall, same thing with Aguayo. You, if, if they had taken him, taken him with the fifth pick, maybe he wouldn't have got inside his own head. Nobody would be would be rapping on, on Jason Light. I'll give you another one, because I, and I agree with you. I think I don't know how you can pick anybody but Roberto Aguayo. But in the Jason Light era, and again, it seemed like a good pick at the time. They all seemed like good picks at the time, you know, whatever they take a guy. How about Vernon Hargraves? Where do we, where do we rank him in terms of... I mean, he's going to be. And misses. Yeah, he's going to be up there. And again, that's another guy. And and I I think this that eleventh overall, eleventh overall in two thousand sixteen. Yeah, I think sometimes guys are. I, here's what I always say about the draft. It's not the player's fault if you overdraft them. And a lot of times, the reason they're viewed as a bust, right, is just that. It's not. The, it's not that they. Now, I'm not going to sit here and tell you Vernon Hargraves had a very good NFL career because he hasn't. But you wouldn't think as badly of him if he were a third-round pick or a late second-round pick as you do because he was taken 11th overall, I believe. Um, and there were there were a bunch of things working against him. They were kind of – I mean, they obviously he had to go through a, a change of regimes, coaching regimes, maybe a couple times over. Um you know, they thought he was a ball hawk. He was anything but. Um, they tried to play him in zone coverage. He was a press man guy. NFL receivers at that time were starting to become really tall and physical because you can't touch a receiver these days with the new rules. That certainly hurt him. I'll tell you something else that hurt him was coming home. I don't I don't think Vernon Hargraves was a guy that needed to be drafted by his hometown team. He's from, you know, what, nearby Lakeland, I think. Or no, Tampa. He went. To, he, that's right. He went to Tampa. Uh, he went to Wharton, I think. So he was. A, he was a local kid. Mom's cooking. All his friends. All of that. I don't blame Vernon. It definitely was not a first round pick. Definitely shouldn't have been. That whole draft. If you go back and look at that draft, woof. No, I mean, not good. No, Noah Spence, which you could also put on the tombstone, you know, of, of Jason Light in terms of that was picks. 39th overall. So almost like high second round, pick. very high second round. And I, I, it was funny. I went to the combine and just as luck would have it, or maybe intuition. I did two stories, two features from the combine that year in Indianapolis. One was Vernon Hargraves and the other was Noah Spence. Noah Spence was a guy that was not one of the, was the best high school player in the country when he signed with Ohio state. Unfortunately, he likes to party a little bit, got into Molly a little bit, and this is all stuff he's talked about, got run out of Ohio State, ended up at Eastern Kentucky, where when you see a guy at Eastern Kentucky, you're like, okay, lower level, but did he dominate? Well, he did dominate. You know, he was a dominant player, but he was a tweener. He was a guy that wasn't quite big enough to play defensive line in a 4-3, um, but maybe not fast and agile enough to play outside linebacker in a 3-4. And by the way, he played both of those. I've watched him gain weight. I've watched him lose weight. What he didn't do was get the quarterback on the ground. And so that turned out to be, you know, for as much draft capital as they use, that whole draft was just a disaster. I mean, there was nobody left from it. Right. And then when you go all-time, Rick, I know you've covered some doozies back at, way back in the day with – the Eric Currys and the the uh, Charles McRae's mm-hmm. and the uh, 
Keith McCants. Um, you know, those, you know, I, I would obviously, I mean, I think it's hard not to look back at Bo Jackson as being the worst because he never played here, obviously. Um, but do you, do you, do you, can't, do you, I mean, you, you had to bl- take him though, right? You had to take him. Well, that's the thing. Like you can blame the bucks for that. And Hugh Colerhouse played a big role because, you know, at the time we saw what Bo Jackson did. Bo Jackson decided to play baseball and was an all-star in both sports at a time when that didn't happen. Right. Like he right. was the first Bo knows, right? Remember Bo knows this Bo knows don't know diddly. Um, he was the most marketable athlete in the world. And, you know, both position, both both baseball, and, and what got him in trouble with the Bucks, what got the Bucks in trouble with him, was that Hugh Colbrass was an Alabama, you know, alumni. There's buildings named at the University of Alabama after Hugh Colbrass, and tax attorney, all of that. Well, they brought Bo Jackson down for a visit before the draft, which they were allowed to do. What they weren't allowed to do, as it turns out, while Bo Jackson was playing baseball at Auburn was to put him on a private plane, financed and owned by Hugh Culverhouse Jr., and then fly him down here to visit and go fishing with Mark Cotney and Scott Brantley. Can you see this picture? (laughs) So when he goes back, um, the NCAA says, yeah, you know that private flight you took to Tampa? Yeah, that's, that's an NCAA violation. That's an illegal inducement. You're not allowed to do that. People can't pay for your flights, even in the NFL. Like, it, and so, anyway, all that mess led to him being unable to play baseball, which really got his goat. And he said, he told them, don't draft me. I'm not coming. I'm gonna, I'll am i play baseball. Don't draft me. Of course, what would you do? Would you not have drafted Bo Jackson number you one have to, You had to draft. You almost have to cause bluff and, and, you know. Well, they did, and the rest and is history. <laughs> and he decided not to play, for them at least, and, and went and played baseball instead. And that led to the greatest – you know, Hugh Culverhouse, may he rest in peace, one of the many press conferences he had where nobody was standing next to him. He had a bunch of those with Parcells and others. But um, that's the one where, um, you know, he stood up there and said, um, you know, I, we've signed every player that we drafted that wanted to play football. Bo Jackson wanted to play baseball. But we signed every player that wanted to play football. And he's like, I was driving across the bridge, and I heard Dion Warwick saying, keep smiling. Keep shining. That's what friends are for. And it was like, <laughs> what in the hell? Just I mean, some of the greatest. I mean, think of the greatest quotes in Tampa. Like that one stands up there. The old, what was it, Chuck Lamari? Other than wins and losses, we've been very <laughs> successful as a franchise. And then uh, at the major league level, other than the, ma- the major, the major league, league level, level, we've been very successful as a franchise. Yeah. And Phil Esposito, I can't read the facts. There's the facts are smudged. <laughs> Boy, God. we had some doozies over the years. <laughs> I'm telling you, but the, yeah, I'm I'm left at the altar. The other one with Culver House was when Bill Parcells. I'll never forget this. So, you know, we went through the whole thing uh, with with Richard Williamson. Um, they tried to get Parcells after they fired Perkins. They ended up with Richard, uh, and it didn't go well. And he went three and thirteen. And two weeks before he was fired, Culver House is flying up to Teterboro and meeting with Bill Parcells, and. Uh, and Parcells was going to, he was working for NBC and Parcells was coming. I mean, there was just no doubt. And he had picked his coaching. All that. So this is the first Parcells uh, left at the office. I mean, Parcells was the runaway bride for the Bucks twice. Not once, Julia but twice. Yeah, right. yeah, he was Julia Roberts with a veil in the wind. So the first time, so I'm walking like, and this went on 
you know, they fired Richard, and we'd, we'd say, Richard, hey, Richard, uh, you know, wrote a story today about Q Culver House, met in Teterboro with Bill Parsons. Well, I, you know, told me about it. I, I think Mr. Culver House <laughs> told me about it when there was something to say, but there's nothing to say, so hadn't told me about it. I don't even know what to talk about. So I was like, okay, you got your head in the sand. That's fine. So sure enough, the season ends. They fire Richard Williamson uh, within minutes. And, uh, you know, and so we're, we're expecting Culver House. He's picked his coaches, everything, all of that stuff. This goes on for a week or two. We, we, uh, uh, I remember they called the Bucks call a press conference, right, to announce their head coach, and it's not much of a cliffhanger. This is not one you're going to have to like scratch your head about who's going to walk out behind the curtain. No, it's Parcells. We've known it. Everybody's written about it. It's got to be Parcells. Tom, I'm walking in the building. I'm exhausted from the the just the whole you know the whole the whole scene, right? Yeah. And and so I walk in the building. Remember the old uh, remember Will McDonough. That worked for uh, yeah. NBC, bold Boston Globe reporter, and then oh, Boston Globe reporter, yeah, the, the boxer, you know, punch dot Raymond Claiborne. Right? <laughs> That's exactly right. The only writer, the only writer known to have dropped a, a football player. I had my chance, but that's another story for another time. Um, so well, I'm walking in, and I look up at the TV, and I'm thinking, I'm thinking, well, this is thank God it's over. Right. I look up at the TV, and there is Will McDonough with Bob Costas, who was hosting, you know, whatever show it was. And he goes, Bob, I just talked to Bill Parcells. He says he's not going to Tampa Bay. And I I literally, I dropped everything that I was holding at that time. I don't know what it was, bag, computer, whatever. It just hit the floor. I went, you got to be blankety blank. And this guy, because this guy was the, he was Schefter before Schefter. Like he, he was knew. he was the info guy. Like he was the dude. Yeah. Like if he said it, Will McDonough said it, it was happening. Will McDonough told you. Bob, I heard that the world is going to stop spinning <laughs> tomorrow at noon. You were going to like you're going to hold on to something tomorrow yes, at noon. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> and that's, he was the voice of God with the Boston Brogue. But right. like, so he says it, and and lo and behold, we walk in there, and Culver House gets up there, and it there's no coach, there's no nothing, and he goes, "Well, I've been left at the altar. For the record, there's no honeymoon." And then he went on to explain how Parcells had just stiffed him. At the, he said, I just don't feel comfortable. At the end, he just told he, – and he held up paper. I felt bad for the guy. He held up a bunch of papers. He goes, I got 32 things I signed off of, anything from coaches' cars to salaries. He did everything he could to get Parcells, and he left him at the altar. And then the Glazers did it a few years later because they tried <laughs> the same thing. It didn't work for them either. It's crazy, right? Like the yeah, stories, that, the stories as you remember. But I don't know. We were talking about the draft. We were talking about um, Jason Light and uh, some of the picks. But Bo Jackson, to me, yeah, you could say because he never played there. But I don't know that he was a bad pick. Like I, I don't know what you do in that situation. Maybe not flying yeah, no, down from to, Auburn you in your private him. plane. You had to take him. But and you it probably wasn't had to take like, him. Yeah, and I, I mean, there were some guys. But you, know, you can go to Booker Reese. You can go to you know. There's a lot of guys, right? Like, oh yeah, oh yeah, for sure. Charles yeah. McRae, you mentioned. You know, I mean, he was not good, to say the least. No, we go, no. we go down that rabbit hole. We'll be there a long time. When we start talking about <laughs> players they uh, missed Keith, on. Keith Browner, yeah, he was a second round pick, but yeah. Um, but yeah, Bo Jackson, Bo, Bo Jackson, first round pick one year, but. And Gruber Gruber was pretty good, but something like Broderick Thomas, okay, you know, the Sandman. 
the but Keith McCann, Keith McCants is up there, is you know among the bigger. Busts. But was Keith? Here's the thing: did, was Keith a bust, or did they like? I always say this: they, there's the we say they're draft busts, or yeah, were no, they yeah. were they busted? Like in other words, the Bucks killed a lot of players, right? Oh, they for could sure. have They listen. I mean this with all sincerity. If Tony Dungy doesn't come at the right time in 95, Derek Brooks may have been a very good player for a lot of years. Right. Warren Sapp may not have been. I don't know. But I don't think either one are first ballot Hall of Fame players if Tony Dungy, Dungy doesn't show up when he did. It's that, not only that. Yeah, not only that, but also, too, like sometimes guys get buried because who's drafted around him. I mean, you look back at that at that draft with Keith McCants. Who was ta- you know who was taking He was fourth overall. Cortez Kennedy was taken right before him. I'll tell you Junior, who was after him. Junior, Junior Seau was, was taken right Quick after him. Quick story about that. So Junior, everybody knew Junior Seau was a great player. I mean, it wasn't a secret, right? I mean, he right. went fifth overall. Should have gone. Uh, I think uh, the Bucks had the fourth pick that year, right? That's correct. So the Bucks are picking fourth. But because Ray Perkins had just come from Alabama a year or two earlier, uh, I believe he got there. Well, he got there in 87. Is that right? So he'd been there about three or four years. But regardless, he knew Keith McCants, Alabama guy. And from what I heard, and it's never been disproven to me, Perkins wouldn't allow his scouts, and I'm sure they had a West Coast, but wouldn't allow them to go out and meet with or work out junior sale. Can you imagine that? Mm. you got a player that was that good at that time, and you are so singularly focused on your guy that you're not even going to go scout Junior Sal. So the Bucks take Keith McCants. I remember I just happened to get lucky. First year on the beat, didn't know anybody. Knew Ray. I can tell you stories about Ray. It was weird meeting him. May he rest in peace. Um, gosh, Tom, all these coaches that I covered are not losers. I'm starting – not that I'm old, but mm, they certainly got old. Um, and, and so – I'm standing, it was the old one buck place, it was a trailer park, and I just happened to be standing outside his office, which was like a waiting area about three by five feet. And I'm not exaggerating. It was just a one secretary sitting there at a desk, and his door was open. And I could hear him talking to, I think, which was Hugh Culverhouse, could have been Hugh Jr., but he's like, yeah, we're going to take him. Mm, I know him. He's going to play outside linebacker for us. He did a good job at Alabama. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna take him. We're gonna play him. We're gonna play him an outside linebacker. So it could only be McCants, right? Sure. So he walks out and his eyes get real big, and he didn't realize I was in the lobby because I had a scheduled press or like a scheduled one on one with him. And I said, "So you're drafting Keith McCants?" <laughs> <laughs> and there was nothing he could say. I had him cornered. He's like, "Yeah, we're gonna take Keith McCants. That's our guy. If he's there, we're gonna take him." So that that was the deal. And the sad thing about Keith was, and he's been struggling his whole life with opiates and different things that as a result of what he took after his injuries, um, that he showed up like Perkins. He had had like 22 tackles in the iron bowl against, uh, against Auburn. Like he was the greatest player I've ever seen, uh, late in the season. But, but he hurt his knee mm-hmm. and he had like a meniscus tear. He had some cleanup, you know, and he's the only draft pick that I've ever covered. Whose first press conference, whose first arrival in Tampa Bay was on crutches. Keith McCants was on crutches when he showed up as the number one pick by the Bucks, fourth overall in the season. They made him get knee surgery right away, and he was hotter than hell about it. He was so mad, he couldn't even see straight. And that led to the greatest lead I've talked to, told this story about ever, where I wrote, he came from Alabama with a bandage on his knee. 
That's awesome. Still one of the greatest leads I've ever written. But it he was it, it was sad because and then you know Perkins left. First he was a stand up three four linebacker. Then he was a four three defensive end that had to gain like twenty five pounds. It was unfortunate what they did with him. But yeah, he, and he you think that if he would have been drafted. If he goes today, to a, yes. If, or he, if goes he was drafted to, today, he has no. Oh. The knee surgery is probably nothing, you know. Yeah, and, it's nothing, and and also if he's in the right scheme, let's say he went to the Giants, maybe he's Lawrence Taylor. Taylor, not look. Lawrence Taylor is a unicorn. I get it. No, but I know. My, what you mean, my point is, so many players in this in in the National Football League are are literally hostage to the teams they go to, and who's around them, and who's coaching them for sure, and where they play them, you know. Um, Brooks and Sapp were all out of position, you know, and John Lynch was a linebacker. Right. You know, so you, you got to have somebody to know where the chess pieces go. You look back at that 90 draft. I'll just ask you this before we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned Cortez Kennedy, Hall of Famer at number three overall pick. Junior Sale, number five overall incredible, pick. Incredible, isn't it? Two other Hall of Famers from that entire draft, 90 draft. Do you, one uh, of them you should name, know. I'll name one, Deion Sanders. No, no, not no, from that the, the in the ninety. In the ninety, this was in the ninety draft. So. Oh, okay. Um, um, what? But you had a. It's, it's a Florida guy. Guy went to University of Florida, drafted seventeenth overall. Hall of Famer Emmett Smith. Emmett Smith, right? Quick and, story about Emmett Smith. Yeah, uh, and I will get you out. I promise I will. That's but, all right. But we're going down misery. Well, lane, but, so. uh, let me give you the other one real yeah, quick. Give me another one. The seventh round pick, tight end out of Savannah State, Shannon Sharp. Imagine yeah, no, one, no, one, no one saw that. 192nd pick overall. Although he did have a pretty famous brother that used to tear the hell out of the Bucks every time he played him. <laughs> That's true. But, yeah, um, get us out on Emmett here. So, really quick, I'll let you go on Emmett. So, um, again, one of my first meetings with Ray Perkins, I go and watch Emmett Smith's workout at the University. In fact, I broke the story, I know it was a while ago, that Emmett Smith was leaving Florida. Spurrier had just been hired, by the way. So, I was in transition between the, the Gators beat and the Bucks beat. Spurrier has been hired, and Emmett Smith um, tells his player, his teammates, that he's going to the NFL. He never played for Spurrier. He could have never played. Came out after his junior year. I wrote that story. Spurrier got bad, whatever. Um, and so I go to the Florida Pro Day. I'm telling you, it would be hard to imagine a guy who had a better Pro Day than Emmett Smith, with one exception. I mean, he caught the ball well. I mean, you just Emmett Smith had been special since – sixth grade right like the guy yeah, ripped it leg- up at a legendary Pens- high school is a, player, a legendary yeah. high school player ripped it up at pensacola ripped it up at florida you know all of that right and you're at the you're in florida like you're in the state of florida you had you could drive to this guy's pro pro day workout oh and by the way their biggest need that year unquestionably was running back wasn't even close like that was that was what they needed so they go up there to the university of florida i watched the workout it was sensational Come back. I'm having lunch with Ray. And I said, what about Emmett Smith? Yeah, I like him. I had lunch with him the other day. He's a good player. But he ran a 4-6. And as soon as he loses a step, he'll be done. He'll have a short career. Short career. Those words will never get out of my mind. Short career. Emmett Smith played longer than any running back, I think, in the history of football. And, yes, he's the all-time leading rusher. Short career? That's amazing. Something. By the way, and just to remind everybody, you know who led? Oh, you know if you remember that, you know who led the Bucks in in rushing that year, Gary Anderson. Gary Anderson, yeah. With a and Reggie Cobb was on that team as well. Yeah. Unbelievable. I'm, I, as a team, they only rushed for sixteen hundred yards. The whole team. Yeah. So 
And Gary Anderson, I mean, you know, in that year, if I if I'm not mistaken, they started four and two. Like they were actually off to a good start. We'll talk about that one other day about the, how they how they gave rise to the Dallas Cowboys. Look at you, you remember this? Bam, yeah, four and two, yeah. and then they lost the next uh, six. They played Dallas twice in a span of like three or four weeks. It was the weirdest quirk of a schedule I've ever seen. Lost to them both times. Lost and a close one, fourteen to ten, and then uh, another close one, seventeen thirteen. Lost on a bomb from Aikman to Michael Irvin, and and um, it was uh, Mark Robinson and and. Um, who was the other safety staring and looking at each other, trying to figure out which one screwed up? <laughs> it was the damnedest thing you've ever In the final seconds, it was the damnedest thing you've ever seen. Anyway, this trip down misery lane is brought to you by um, Tom Jones and the Pointer Institute. Tommy, you got a newsletter. It's out five days a week, sometimes seven. Uh, and uh, we got to go and see that on pointer.org. What's going on these days? Oh, I'm sure that? Tucker Carlson's saying something crazy again. <laughs> That's all okay. I write about is Tucker Carlson. Really? Is, so, he, the, is he the hot, uh, the trending guy right now? Yeah, well, every day he's the trending guy. It's, it's to the point where it's like, do I write about him anymore? Well, I was going to say, let me ask this question. We'll get yeah. out. I promise you. I don't want to get political or anything like that. Yeah, but yeah. Is, there, is there something to the fact that, you know, there is the old sound of one hand clapping. You know what I'm saying? No, like, I know what you mean. And, like and, you, and yeah, sometimes you struggle with the idea of like, do you do you ignore somebody or by just repeating what they say? Are you giving it air? Are you giving it oxygen? Are you amplifying exactly something that right? Should be like, are you, are you not part of the problem? You know, right? Or, and I think or maybe could, maybe you're 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 creating whatever. Yes, I think there's a there's a. You could make that argument, and, and many of us do, many media critics do. But I also think the, the bottom line is this guy has the most watched show on cable news. No question. And, and, and his listeners, and I know this, his viewers, his audience, take him extremely seriously because I get the emails telling me they do. Mm-hmm. And so when he says things that, you know, that people should call the um, police if they see parents having masks on their children um, – that's that's worrisome, and people can say, "Oh, he's kidding." Don't take him seriously. I got news for you. his audience takes him seriously because, like I said, I hear from them, mm. and and so I, that's where I think when he says something that is potentially dangerous or irresponsible, um, that it that it could create some sort of issue. Then I think you you do need to amplify it. You know, if he just says you know the normal stuff about if it's politics, if he's going to criticize Pelosi or Biden or whatever, that's, that's, that's different. Fair game. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And it is fair game. Sure. Mm -hmm. And, and here's the other thing, Rick, I'll say this real quick, not to get super political either, but there, there is a discussion to be had about masks, a serious discussion. Let's talk about masks. Absolutely. But let's not start with like call, call child services. If you see a kid wearing a mask, that's you now, now we're just, now we're just, we're just, Fear mongering at the that thinking point. is they may Outrage. have more more important cases. Yeah, than that, seriously. Right? And and meanwhile, while we're talking about that, we're not talking about other issues that we could be talking about as far as like opening businesses up, you know, for one hundred percent capacities and that sort or of thing. Or schools and those. Or kind schools. Of things, yeah. Or yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Well, check him out. Uh, Tom Jones pointer.org, his uh, newsletter Monday through Friday. Thanks, Tommy. Two great days of podcasts. Appreciate it. Yeah. Buddy. Talk to you next week. <laughs>